Pages of Pim Better Podcast. Greetings, Voyagers. This is the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast, and this is episode number 73, I'm coming to you from Kendi in Sri Lanka. Since I last recorded and you last heard from me, I went to the mountain town of Ella. Ella, I guess technically is still in the south of Sri Lanka, but is a bit north of the uh, beach towns where I had been hanging out last time I recorded. Now, Ella is really beautiful. Um, still real hot during the day, but gets cooler at night, maybe down to like 70 Fahrenheit or like high 60s even. So I was wearing jeans. Oh, it was glorious. Yeah, people wearing like jumpers and pullovers and things like that. Um, so crisp and cool at night, just like perfect, like kind of like autumn. Ella probably is best known for a few things, uh, Ella Rock is a hike. Little Adams Peak is another really cool hike. And maybe the most iconic thing in terms of like travel blogging and photography and things like that is the Nine Arch Bridge. The Nine Arch Bridge, much like its name, is a bridge with these nine uh, stone archways. And it's just really pretty looking. And you could sit along the bridge and you can hike it. Uh, while the train comes, and that's really, really cool. Uh, the railway system was built by the British, and it's still the one that's used today. I got to the Nine Arch Bridge from Ella Town. So really what you do is you go to the railway station, you go to the platform, and you hop down onto the tracks, <laughs> and you walk the length of the tracks. Uh, if a train is oncoming, they do move a bit slow, but you can, you can hop off, and there's space on the sides so that you don't get uh, squished. But I have heard stories from a few travelers they met that said that um, they were they were hiking it and, and a train was coming. And you, you kind of like, you're thinking about it the whole time. Like you hear stuff off in the distance or a whistle or something like that. And you're like, oh, like which direction is the train coming from? Is it going to come? It's very, uh, very stand by me-esque. Uh, but it's it's so cool. So like maybe like two kilometers from the Ella station to get to Nine Arch Bridge. And it's, it's, it's beautiful and lush and green on both sides of you. Uh, there's like uh, animal sounds coming from the, the, the brush or the, the jungle on each side of you. You go through a tunnel right before you get to the bridge. It's really cool. And luckily um, I timed it to where I knew the train was coming. They usually are pretty late, so it actually came like 40 minutes later, but I knew when it would kind of be coming. And I got to hang out on the bridge as it came by, and it's awesome. Like one, one leg sitting on the side, like one leg dangling over the, the side of the bridge, the other like where the train's coming. There's kids leaning out the windows and the doors waving at you. It's awesome. Uh, yeah, Ella was great. I hiked Little Adam's Peak. Uh, was super sweaty, uh, but it is, it's beautiful up there. It looks like you're walking through uh, the Alps or something like that. It's so green. Um, and there's, there's two peaks past Little Adam's Peaks, which, which were quite a trek to get to, um, but really, really gorgeous. I have a couple pictures of it up on uh, my Instagram account if you want to check that out. Probably the coolest thing to do in relation to Ella, and honestly, 
one of the coolest things I've done in Sri Lanka, or one of the coolest things really I've done traveling, is to take the train from Ella to Kandy, or vice versa. A lot of people actually take it the other way from Kandy to Ella. Wow. So, you know, I didn't... There's, there's three classes for the train. There's first class, second class, third class. First class is air-conditioned, obviously the most expensive, with windows that don't open. Uh, second class is comfier seats. I believe you get a specific seat. Third class, depending on the train, can be like wooden seats and unreserved seats, or it can also have unreserved and reserved. And... Um, both in second and third, you can open the windows and hang out the window and, and hang out the doorway, which is really crazy and, and dangerous and, and, and fun. Uh, when I went, I requested a second class ticket. They said, all we have left is third. You have to book them like literally days in advance. And I booked it one day in advance. So I said, okay, I got a third class ticket. And I, I didn't even realize at that time that there were some reserved seats in third class. So that's what he had given me. So I actually got a seat number. Someone had been sitting in my seat, but it didn't matter. <laughs> I, just, I just sat somewhere else. Um, but luckily, I met two really cool guys on the train. Uh, one of them is a photographer, uh, Callum, and the other one was traveling with his girlfriend, uh, both from England, uh, both really cool guys. And we, you know, we sat and we, we shared stories. You know, we took pictures hanging out the window, hanging out the, <laughs> hanging out the door, which you really got to pay attention because there's one stretch where it's just like tunnel after tunnel after tunnel. It's these little short tunnels and, uh, it'll knock your head right off if you're, if you're hanging out the, the doorway and that tunnel's coming up. But really what's so amazing about it is, is the scenery. Sri Lanka is so diverse in that, uh, it still has some rainforest, it has jungle, it has mountains, it has beaches. And when you're going along the, the railway from Ella to Kandy, you're passing through mountain passes. You're going past the tea fields, which are incredible, tea being the number one export from Sri Lanka. Uh, there's some waterfalls you go past and rivers. You see kids wave and it stops. Uh, there's guys that sell some stuff, you know, at, at the stops and there's guys that come on the train and sell stuff, you know, 50 cents American for a delicious spicy samosa and, uh, you get iced tea, these spicy, salty peanuts, which were really amazing. Uh, it's a, it's a trip, man. It's an experience. Probably like the first two thirds of it, we were just like on high, like it was, it was beautiful. We loved it. And, and like every five minutes we're saying to each other, Oh man, this is great. But the last third of it <laughs> was a little tough. Um, I took the six thirty, So it was nice and cool in the morning, but it's a seven hour trip and you know, last couple hours, it got real crowded and real hot and stinky. And you just kind of want to get off at that point, but really awesome experience. I, I it's one of the, the things I would say that like you have to do in Sri Lanka or else you haven't experienced Sri Lanka as if I were at all an expert on the country. Uh, but for me, at least it was, it was really cool. I'm glad to have met those two guys. Um, 
one of them I'll be seeing in Singapore. And we're actually going to do an episode about his time volunteering at a, at an elephant orphanage. So I took that, that train, like I said, from Ella to Candy. Candy is where I am now. Probably best known for uh, Temple of the Tooth, which is supposed to be housing the Tooth of the Buddha. Um, I went today. There was a ceremony going on, and it's Sunday, so it was crazy crowded. Um, really, really crowded, actually. Still pretty cool. Um, there, there was uh, because of the ceremony. There was music. And the entrance to it is really beautiful. It's this this corridor with this uh, Buddhist artwork. Uh, you're definitely crammed in there like a sardine, and you don't get. I mean, you don't actually get to see the tooth itself, and you don't get much uh, time in front of the shrine. But it's something you got to do if you're here. Um, so it was a cool experience, and it was pretty hot inside. So afterwards, you can come out, and there's a pagoda. So I just hung out and chilled and, and talked to a few people under the pagoda. I went to the giant Buddha also. That's a, that's a, that's a trek if you don't take a tuk-tuk up a hill, but there's a an 88-foot Buddha, and um, th these things, they never look the same in pictures as they do in person. It's real impressive. You can see it from all over Candy. In fact, this morning I was lost, and I knew that where I'm staying is like right around the corner from the Buddha. And so I just looked for the Buddha, which you can see everywhere and headed in that direction. Um, yeah, not here too much longer because there's still uh, a lot left to see here. Um, so tomorrow, I still don't know exactly where I'm headed, uh, but I have a couple of options. Probably check in again via podcast before I leave. Okay. So Yesterday, I was I really wanted a coffee because I didn't have any at all, and then I took that train ride. So I went to a place called uh, Buono, uh, B-U-O-N-O, and they had really good coffee. And while I was in there, I saw that uh, some of the proceeds from the food that's bought there goes to an organization called Child Action Lanka, which also meets in the same building. And so I looked them up. And I saw that their purpose was to help um, disadvantaged youth in Sri Lanka and and women and people who, who need assistance. When I was in Colombo, I had seen a lot of homelessness. You see some of it here too in Kandy. Kandy is the second largest city here. So um, you do see people sleeping on the street and begging and selling stuff on the streets. So there's a whole stretch in Colombo, which is, is real heartbreaking. Um, but Child Action Lanka provides education and food and healthy living alternatives and health care and opportunities and jobs and things like that. And so I was like, wow, it would be great to, to talk to the person who is heading this organization and to find out what the situation here in Sri Lanka is, uh, why would there be homelessness, why would there be kids on the streets, what are some of the issues that you guys are tackling. So I reached out, and Debbie, who is, Debbie and her husband are the ones who have founded Child Action Lanka. Um, Debbie Edirisingha, I hope I did that well, Debbie. Um, 
she was absolutely fantastic. Like she responded right away. Yeah, yeah, I'll meet you. Um, so we just met just a couple hours ago and, and recorded. And I asked them, you know, some, some tough things that um, might be difficult to answer, but she was real candid and honest and uh, educated me and provided a lot of great information. Uh, so I, I'm proud of this one. I think that uh, you should like it. Please check out the show notes for this episode. You will find out how you can assist in providing monetary support for Child Action Lanka. If you want to be a volunteer yourself, you can head to their website, which is also linked through the show notes in this episode because they do rely a lot on um, volunteer work. And I think that they're an organization that's worth contributing to. Awesome. If you want to support this podcast, you can do so on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the voyages of Tim Vetter. If you cannot do so financially, what you can do is leave me a five-star rating and review um, on iTunes or the podcast application of choice. Thank you, everybody, for listening. I look forward to bringing you some more content as this journey continues. from Sri Lanka? Yes, I'm from Sri Lanka. Where in Sri Lanka are you from? Well, I was born in Colombo, uh, and then when I got married, I moved to Kandy. So I live in Kandy now. So you live in Kandy now. Yeah. Okay. And how long ago did you get involved in um, like advocacy and issues where you are helping other people? Um, I think I've always been involved with helping other people. It's been a large part of my life. Uh, but officially, I'd say for the last 13 years, uh, ever since I started Child Action Lanka okay. uh, in 2006. Now, what did, you, um, what did you witness, what did you see that was going on in Sri Lanka that made you say, hey, there's a need for this organization? Um, what it is was, you know, I'm the kind of person who'd walk down the road, never noticed uh, these people living on the streets. It, it was a normal part and something that we'd grown up seeing, mm. people begging with, people seated on the streets, kids running around. And it was just part of the gender chaos, I suppose. Um, and then I had a friend of mine who was an English teacher. And so she started teaching a few of these kids on the street. Um, and she invited me one day to meet her and uh, coming and seeing what she was doing. I was really inspired by it. And I said, you know, what can I do to help you? Um, and she said, well, maybe you can take on these eight kids. And that's mm. kind of where we started out. And it's funny because after that is when it really opened my eyes to notice, you know, there's, there's people out there noticing their faces, noticing that, you know, they all had different names. They, they thought just like we did. They felt like we did. It's just they were in a different setting. That's really interesting that you say that because, so I've been a lot of places and um, it's a similar story in a lot of cities and in a lot of countries where you do see 
um, people who are impoverished or you see, yeah, kids working on the streets, selling bracelets and things like that. And I always think that like, hey, like this, this could have been me, right? Mm. Like this could be anybody. This is a person with a story. They're just born into a situation much different than, than myself. Yeah. Um, so when you were growing up then, you, uh, you didn't have to go through any of the things that the kids that you're yeah, helping now. I, I kind of grew up in a normal middle class family, okay. uh, very sheltered life. And I think my parents sheltered me from a lot of these things to the point that even meeting an alcoholic or a drug addict was a huge deal. Really? Uh, and I couldn't even see myself bring myself to even speak to one of them because I was so scared of these people. But mm. now, when I look at my life now, it's just become part and parcel of life. You know, I'm, I'm talking to them. They're my, they're my friends. I've got to know them. And right. being there to help them, I think, is an amazing privilege. So kids who are... Um, so let's say you are going to assist kids who are working on the street. Are they often working on the street because they're orphaned or they're working to get money for their families? Is there like a typical situation? Um, it's very rare that you come across kids who are orphaned because okay. they might have a single parent. You know, they might be a single parent or they got uncles and aunts or somebody in the community would be taking care of them. In most cases, um, they would be selling something or doing something on the streets to earn money for their families. Yeah. And yes, people say, oh, this is parents, you know, trying to get their kids to work. But the parents are working as well, and very often what they work isn't enough because there's a whole string of little siblings who right. need the money as well. Is there, um, like, compulsory education for kids? Is yes. there... So... so those children would still have an opportunity to go to school? Yeah, so what they do is uh, they could go to school in the morning. So school starts at 7.30 in the morning, finishes okay. by 2 o'clock in the afternoon. So after that, uh, uh -huh. that's when they kind of go around selling things and working on the streets. I see. As long as it's not hazardous or as long as it's not hard, heavy labor, they'll have to do a little bit of it. Hmm. Not not on the for, not in the formal sense, but... Um, you know, it just so happens their families are such. I mean, I know of a little boy. He's uh, 12 years old now, and he sells little cards on the street. They're little like calendar, pocket calendar cards. Yeah. And when when he sells this, he's able to uh, buy <coughs> fried rice for his brothers and sisters. There okay. are four of them, and every night they wait for this pack of fried rice. Now mm. we at the center, we do give them dinner to take back, but obviously every single day is not something special. Right. So for him being able to buy this pack of fried rice with a nice piece of chicken is like party. It's like Christmas. Yeah, of course. <laughs> and he feels really important. I'm, I'm giving this. I'm, you know, being able to provide for my family. Yeah. His brothers and sisters think no end of him because he brings them this pack of fried rice. And so, you know, it's little things like that that kind of motivate them to then, you know, kind of go into selling cards and all that. And... Yes, it might not be right, but when you look at it and when you get to know the family and why they're doing things, right, of course. little things, you know, it's a very fine line, I think. Where do you think the, the poverty situation comes from? Um, is, is there a lack of um, enough jobs in the country? Are there um, regional issues? Like, why would there be, like, I saw it actually a lot in Colombo there's like a whole strip where you see a lot of people who are homeless um, what do you think is the cause of that 
Um, part of it is, is generational. Mm. So if you look at it, their parents didn't work. They were born in prison. The kids themselves, you know, grew up in prison or in juvenile homes and didn't really acquire skill. Uh, most of them are not educated. And also the lack of jobs as well. But when you look at these people, a lot of them don't have basic rights as a human being. So they might not have a birth certificate, no national identity card, no documents to prove their existence. So if they go like that into any organization asking for a job, people are kind of very reluctant to give them employment. Wow. Because who knows who they are? Right. Um, except that we know, you know, this person was born in such a place, doesn't know who their mom or dad is, has wow. no idea what their uh, surname could possibly be. They don't know when they were born, where they were born. And that's the reality of the story, but not everyone's going to accept that story. Right. Yeah. Wow, I had never even thought of that. I mean, the funny thing is, and, you know, people like this don't even get counted into national statistics. Right. They're not part of the voting they're not, they're not community. part of the census, yeah. Um, they're not part of anything, so they don't even get calculated into levels of literacy or anything in the country. Right. Yeah. I know that um, Sri Lanka exports a lot of, of like, foodstuffs, right? So, so tea and spices. So there's a lot of, of farm work. Yeah. And there's also, with like many places throughout the world with the increase in tourism, like there's a lot of work in the service sector. Um, where else are the, like the largest portions of the economy? W what types of jobs are those? Like where, where might people be seeking employment? Um, a lot of them do end up going to the Middle East, um, sadly, uh, for domestic labor. Really? Yeah. But, um, you know, there, there are legal issues with it, as in like a woman with a child below the age of five can't leave the child and go. But there are oh, ways of yeah. working around the system. So a lot of them do end up, you know, leaving their little kids, going off to the Middle East, looking for jobs, um, leaving the child here maybe with the dad or with relatives. Mm. Very often um, exposing the child to a lot of uh, abuse and sexual abuse, right. physical abuse. Um, and that's something that we are trying to deal with by trying to provide some form of employment for these women. Mm. I had just spent some time in the Philippines and I know a lot of um, Filipino workers will go to like Bahrain yeah. because uh, the currency is valued higher and then you can send that money back home. That's so right. It's a similar situation yeah. then. Yeah. Wow. Um, so then how do you and your organization, how do you identify which children to help? Is there like an enrollment process? Yes. How so does that work? At Child Action Lanka in Kandy, we deal with street kids. And when we say street, they're either kids who live on the streets or mm. their parents work on the streets, which means they spend a lot of their time on the streets. Or it's families who are um, facing situations that if we didn't intervene, they'd be the next set on the streets. Mm. So it's those three criteria that we use. Um, and generally, they would come looking for us, or sometimes we might be referred to by the police or the social services, by courts, probation and childcare. Um, and when they come, there's a process of a screening process, they've got an application process, they need recommendation by somebody within the organization, one of the other families who can vouch and say, yes, we know them. Sometimes we might uh, give us a price visit to go and check the surroundings, to check if the story is true, um, just to make sure we can help them 
exactly as as needed. Yeah. Yeah. Are there shelters where um, the homeless population can go and stay at least in a, a place that's a, a little safer? Not really. No. no. We've been pushing for that and asking for a shelter in town uh, because there are a few families that live on the streets yet and it's because they work on the street mm. and uh, their, their time... Um, the timings of work for them uh, don't really help in going back home. So it might be like from two in the evening till 10 in the night. Yeah. Or going to work at, you know, three or four in the morning, which means going home and then our public transport isn't great at that time. Mm -hmm. So then it doesn't really help them to go home and stay. So we've been pushing for the whole shelter process, but... It hasn't quite happened yet, no. Is that just a situation of economics? So there's, is there not enough money to go to I the so. social spending? I think so, yeah. Pretty much. So you mentioned um, assistance with, um, particularly with women also. Mm. Is there, you know, in, in places, often in places of poverty, um, some people will resort to like sex work. Yeah. Is that a situation here in Sri Lanka as well? It is, it yeah. is. It's not legal. Mm -hmm. um, it happens illegally but I think a lot of the women I mean uh, I think society looks down on it and society sees it as something uh, a taboo thing right. but when you listen to their stories and why they're doing it and it's probably when you look at the amount of money they get in comparison to a normal job that you know they'd have to work for 10 hours and right, of course. earn maybe a fraction of it and the stories of their kids and their lives, well, you know why they're doing it. We're looking into ways of how we can help, help them come out of it, provide them with other options, but um, it, it does remain a huge challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So once you have a, a child, like we, we've, we've touched on a number of things, but what I guess specifically are the services that a child is going to receive once they're accepted into the organization? It depends on what age they are. So we have kids going from crash, from baby, so they might be oh, a wow. few days old, and they're taken care of the bed, they're clean, they're fed, uh, looked after, you know, their milk's given, they have teachers taking care of them, caregivers playing with them, um, going out right, right up to the age of 18 where kids can finish their schooling with us. Oh. Um, but as we've been in existence for about 13 years now, we've got kids who've gone through the system who are now in higher education. Some of the kids who are working, some of the kids who are into professional uh, skill, and some of the kids who are actually overseas doing jobs as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, so for them, Child Action Lanka remains their home. So I can't really put a dot and say, at the age of 18, you're out. I see. Um, they keep coming back. This is home for them. This is their safe place. This is what they know, that a place that they belong to. So they might come on and off. They come for lunch. They come, you know, because we give education free of charge, food free of charge, clothing, everything that a child needs to be able to survive, to look after. We, we believe in holistic education. So it's more like giving them the whole counseling, you know, all the dealing with the whole all-round issues of the children. So um, I, I think they feel like this is a place that they belong to. So even past the age of 18, they keep coming back. Yeah. Um, but also some of them now coming back to actually help some of the younger ones, uh, providing them with sponsorships, huh. giving back. So 
I think Child Action Lanka has grown to helping kids, helping young adults, uh, helping women in the community. I was going to ask if you have any, uh, and it sounds like you do, if you have any specific success stories, if there's a certain child who, I don't know, went off and went to university and has returned. Yeah, so we've got... Uh, We've got a few stories, but I can share one in particular about cool. a young man. Uh, his mom used to sell lottery tickets on the street. His dad used to sell fruits on the street. And they lived on the street most of, most, most of their life. Um, and he, he was in particular a very bright young man. So he came to our center uh, and he came through the whole process. We had extra classes for him, but our teachers kind of figured out that this was one particularly bright kid with help that he'd really do well. So the teachers actually ended up spending quite a bit of extra time with him um, later in the evenings as well to tutor him especially um, so that he could get through his exams. Mm. And then at the age of 16, we've got an O-level exam here, ordinary level. And uh, he did really well in his exam. And... You know, he was not one of the kids who had all the all the facility to sit down at a table and take down his notes. He sat by the street lights, studying in the nights, doing his exams. And during in-between papers, uh, we would have, you know, other parents go and give their kids food and all that. We just had teachers, whenever they were free, go and give lunch or whatever he needed at that time. He got through his exams really well. And then uh, we put him into a semi-government school, um, one of the good schools in Kandy, um, acting as his guardians, because if they really knew who his parents were or his background, we were really worried about the whole discrimination factor. Mm. And so he, um, he went into the school. We gave him everything he needed to be like one of the normal kids so no one would know what his background was. When it came to parents' meetings, we went there, we spoke to the teachers and um, he was he really outshone and did really well. Prize givings, he got prizes and in school, when it came to school leadership, he did really well. Um, Hi, it's okay. <laughs> we have a, a visitor Uh, at his A-level exam, um, the exam that you do when you're 18, mm -hmm. he did really well. And uh, his thing was he always wanted to be a lawyer. And he said, I want to stand on behalf of my community uh, and speak up for them because I know they're not heard. Um, and my little pet phrase is, this is a faceless, nameless community. And he saw the same thing. And he mm -hmm. said, you know, if I can stand up for them. And so... Uh, he went into university, uh, he studied law, and uh, he's working under a lawyer right now. Wow. Uh, and he's been dealing with a few of the smaller issues that we have, you know, when it comes to kids and something, you know, child abuse and things like that. He's been dealing with a few of those, but I... I feel he's going to come a lot more into it. I mean, he's been visiting us. Whenever we go to the centers, he comes to the other centers around the island with us. And he's got like a big heart for the whole thing. So That's amazing. Yeah, that's one of the stories. But there's so many more of them. Hmm. Is child abuse a significant part of the issue? A huge issue. I mean, really? at least 95% at least of the kids that we work with are abused, um, mainly sexually. Why do, like, where do you think that comes from? 
I think it's just because they're, they're left in unprotected situations mm. or just because of the way they live. So, you know, dad, mom, kids, they all live together in one little space. They see so much, they mm. hear so much. Um, and then they're always roaming around. If they're not at the center, they're roaming around in, in between houses or with, within the community. There's, there's a lot of... Um, Unlimited access, I'd say. It th things are not fenced well, so you know they they get they e they're easily able to meet with mm. older guys, older men around who are, who are out there to take advantage. And it might be, you know, okay, I'll give you a mango if you do this for me, right. kind of thing. So it's for little things that the kids then fall for. Um, so in that sense, it's it's quite a big issue. Wow. Um, who are the the people who are working as um, teachers and educators, the, the people that are assisting with the organization? Um, we do depend on a lot of volunteers. Mm. So we've got quite a fair number of volunteers who do come from different countries as well. But um, the people here who work with us, I'd say very few of them are actually qualified teachers. Um, sadly, there's a whole social stigma that's attached to these kids that people don't want to associate themselves with them. So, you know, the top quality people are not the people that would like to kind of um, show any kind of attachment or acknowledge this this sector. Mm. So we've got a lot of people, young people, I think, who work with, this, with, with the kids. Um, but they're people who have a heart for the kids. And for me, I think if you have a heart, we can give the rest of the training. That's not, not impossible. How would somebody go about uh, volunteering if they wanted to assist? So if they like to volunteer, we've got uh, our websites there and our email address is there, www.childactionlanka.org. Um, and if they came through that, uh, we'd immediately connect them with a uh, Cal volunteer coordinator okay. who then send them all the necessary information, have a Skype interview with them. They'd need to give us a little bit of their background and some of the information. Tell us when they can come out, how long they can come out for, where they would like to volunteer because it could be at one center or it could be at a few different centers around the right. island and mix it with a bit of tourism as well if they'd like to and uh, come and share their skill with us. Very cool. Um, so I, have, I have a number of, of, of questions. Um, I want to word this correctly. I want to make sure that this, this comes off right. But you mentioned that there's sort of a stigma with, with the population, right, with um, the homeless population, which I think probably in most places there is that stigma. Um, I know that the, and this is not an indictment on anyone's religion, but I know that um, at least historically um, in India and in other places where there is Hinduism, there's still a strong connection to believing in the caste system. Does that play into it at all here, or is that, or people have more of like a modernized view of things? No, the caste system is there. The caste system is quite big. Um, but I think apart from that also, there's a re reincarnation and rebirth factor. Mm. And people believe that, you know, you're paying for, like, so if you were born in this situation as the street people would, it's probably because you've done something really bad in your last life. Yeah. And so you need to live it, you need to suffer, you need to get past it in order to, and come out being a good human being if you want to be someone better in your next life. Yeah. Um, so 
at one point when I went to one of the schools, which I won't mention the name, but one of the schools that our kids go to, and I spoke to the school principal, as in, you know, how can we work together? Let's partner together. After all, you're educating the kids. We want the best for the kids. Let's get together and do it. And she just turned around and said, you know, what is it to you? Why do you care that these kids are suffering? Can you not see they're only paying for their last life? Um, Don't waste your time over them. So in my mind, you know, that's where I kind of lost the last bit. When I kind of yeah. If school is saying that, there's no hope out there, is there? And the historical roots of that are so deep. Like that goes all the way to the Indus civilization when the um, the northern Indians came down, the Aryans came down, and uh, essentially. Uh, imparted Hinduism on the culture. So I would imagine that would be really difficult to combat when you're trying to help kids and some people's mentality is, well, this is sort of what's supposed to be happening to them. Hinduism, Buddhism, they all believe in these kind of things. So it is hard. I mean, um, that's that's the reason I said a lot of people wouldn't locally, a lot of people don't want to be associated with Mm. them, you know. These are people, A, from a lower caste, but B, they also, you know, they haven't done anything good in their last life. Wow. So this is their punishment. Don't try to intervene. Yeah. Yeah. Does, um, in the States, in the United States, we say that we have a separation of church and state, um, which I think probably everybody understands that that means that religion shouldn't influence politics. It still does greatly. Um, and I know that recently in India, the government has, has said it's okay to marry between castes and to sort of give like a 21st century century version of religion. Um, has has the government here distanced themselves at all from that notion of the caste system or is it kind of intertwined with politics? I think it's, um, it's more hidden... It's not that obvious as as it is in India. Mm. In India, I think the caste system is a, a lot more obvious, and it comes out, you know, quite quite strong. But here, it's kind of an underlying factor, and it's not something that's openly talked about or mm. brought out, saying, you know, oh, I don't want to marry you because of your caste or whatever. That's not there. It's just you generally avoid or say no because it's a very um, Sri Lanka has a very non-confrontational culture, so you wouldn't be very direct or very open or say things as it is. So I think it's kind of underlying. It's there, but it wouldn't be openly talked about. So for the government to have to address that kind of an issue, it doesn't come out in the open. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Uh, thank you for being honest about all that. I know that could, that could be a difficult and touchy. Um, one thing that I'm really interested in is, so I travel, um, it's my main passion right now. It's like my lifestyle <laughs> is just traveling. Um, and I'm really interested in like my place in sort of the ecosystem of travel. Um, and so I think that with the internet age, that's really increased the amount of, of travel that's taken place, the amount of tourism. Um, I'm wondering in recent years or even in like the last decade maybe, how you've seen things change, if it's either in Kandy, either in Kandy or Sri Lanka as a whole, if you see things changing due to increased tourism? Um, 
I think a lot of things are changing because of tourism. Mm. Um, the good and the bad. Yeah. Um, I think in terms of good things, uh, there's a, 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 there's more opportunity. Uh, there's more in terms of the markets expanding, I think, in terms of skills expanding, in terms of a person just being able to work from anywhere in the world, actually. I mean, some of the people who work for us or with us are not even based in Sri Lanka, but mm. they're traveling around the world. They're, they're still able to work with us virtually, and that's amazing. Um, in terms of the bad side of things, I think there's also a lot of uh, being open to the bad side of different cultures and a lot of a lot of influence coming from different places that probably are ruining cultures as well. Yeah. Um, you know, even if you look at our kids at our centers, they're taking on all these, all, all the different cultures that come on that you know is not part of them, right. but not really understanding the context from which it did come or why they do what they do. Um, just seeing it as it is and taking on things, um, which is probably a bit sad as well because... Uh, uh, it, it's probably ruining the little bit of you know culture that they could have had and could have grown up in. So right. I think it's there's mixed feelings about it. But, yeah. Um, but it's really, on the other hand, I see it as an amazing opportunity when people are traveling around the world. Um, for us personally, we've been able to meet lots of different people from all walks of life. You know, just coming in and out of the organization. And they might be on holiday or they might be just looking for, you know, maybe a one or two days opportunity to come and do something with the kids. And because of that, we've been able to meet some amazing people who've come, you know, initially they just came for a day or two. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, they kept on coming year after year, year after year, and they've just become a part of the organization now. Wow. And um, so in that sense, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think more so than a lot of places I've been, Sri Lanka has really like maintained its culture. Mm -hmm. um, I always use this example just because it's easy, but like you can go down streets in Bali and not run into any Indonesians because it's wow. all Australians. Um, <laughs> and really, like the the only place here so far that I just ran into lots of tourists was Ella, uh, which is still an incredibly beautiful place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's a really it's a place that's retained its culture and it is a very unique culture. It's different than any place I've been. Um, are you, is, is there like a 10-year plan for the organization? Are you looking to spread to other places within Sri Lanka? Yeah, so right now we're based in eight different districts in Sri Lanka. So we're in the north, south, east, west, central. Um, but uh, we've got 25 districts in Sri Lanka and wow. we'd like to have one at least one center in each district okay um, I my my plan for the growth of the organization though is to have other organizations maybe the corporates maybe institutes that can then adopt a center and we implement the model and the structure of how it works but different financial organizations or corporates um, anyone who's interested could then adopt the center and and kind of handle the running of it uh, just to make sure that we're reaching as many kids as possible but also then to come into a place of being able to influence policies and decision making regarding mm. these people it does a hundred percent of the funding come from like philanthropy from um, organizations that are looking to help or does any of it come from the government um, so 
Um, some of it, some of it comes from friends because um, Dilshan, my husband, and myself, we both studied overseas. Oh wow! And so we've got friends who live overseas who liked what we were doing and decided to support what we do. Uh, we've also got some. Uh, the government funds us in kind um, by supplying us with, you know, maybe school uniforms, books, bags, shoes, furniture for our centres that kind of support. Um, but also something that we do is uh, have income generating projects. So Bono, the cafe that you were at, is actually one of those projects and the profit that comes from it goes directly into the project. Oh, that's great. Uh, we've also got Sari Upcycling, um, different products being made, they're all sold overseas and the money then also helps sustain, you know, the families that are that actually do it, so they're paid like a fair trade price. But on top of that, the profit then comes back into the project. So I think something that I'm looking at in the future is to try and make it more sustainable where we are less donor dependent and actually have more projects that can sustain the work that we do. That's awesome. And in the notes for this episode, people who are listening can go check that out. There will be a link. I know depending on where you live regionally, there's different methods in which you can uh, donate financially. So I'll have links to all that so that people can donate if they want to. Thank you. Um, just a couple more questions. And thank you so much for uh, spending this time. No worries. Um, there, in, in my estimation, there's sort of um, a global movement right now, again, assisted by the internet, uh, in which there is female empowerment. Um, you see it in the States, you see it everywhere. And so a place like the United States, this is going to be a long, long point. A place like the United States is still a relatively new culture, right? Like while Sri Lanka itself is also a newer country, Sri Lanka the country, um, it's one of the oldest cultures in the world. Mm. Um, and so when you have things like that with culture and religion, you have like deeply rooted ideas about life and about gender norms and roles and things like that, um, which is sort of butting up against or colliding with a largely youth-driven movement towards empowerment for all sorts of people, but also specifically women. Um, so we mentioned some a few issues, but I'm wondering if there's anything that we didn't touch on um, that are specific to women in Sri Lanka and sort of what um, if, if there's movements of empowerment that are happening here to sort of change long-held beliefs about gender roles? I know that's a long question. <laughs> yeah, I think that's also one of the uh, SDGs, I think, gender equality. Mm. Um, so there's quite an emphasis on, on gender equality right now, I'd say, um, with a lot of the organizations. And... I'd still say Sri Lanka is a very male-dominant society, mm. uh, very male-centered. Um, but but there are quite a few organizations that are standing up as, you know, let's empower women. But um, I think I think also it's a, a little more than just empowering a woman. I think women need to know where their place is in, in society. They need to learn to step up and not shy away. Mm. Um, I, I see a lot of the Sri Lankan women as women who tend to shy away from opportunity uh, and mm. they, they, tend to, they tend to naturally take a back seat unless mm. they're forced to come out into the limelight. Um, and when they are asked to come on a stage, for example, when they're asked to speak, 
they're not very bold or confident even when given the opportunity so more than you know telling women where their place is or what they could do i think women need to uh, seize the day, seize the opportunities, step up, be more confident in who they are. And that's something our Sri Lankan women lack. I think naturally because it's part of the culture, a, woman's, a woman expects that of herself. Mm. Um, and I think breaking that mold, breaking that glass ceiling is something that they need to do for themselves. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think maybe... Um, you know, they're more, and I'm not just saying this because you're here, but uh, I saw that you won an award and you're running an organization. Maybe the more that they see women such as yourself um, who are leading organizations and are, are doing really uh, big and important things that are being recognized globally, uh, maybe more people will start to come out of that shell and, and start to change that situation. I do hope so. It's uh, sincerely one of my hopes and aspirations. I mean, it's funny because... Sometimes I might get a call from, you know, some institute or organization and immediately they expect a man to answer. Mm -hmm. So they're like, they call and say, Mr. Edirising? I'm like, no, it's Mrs. Edirising. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, oh, but are you the head of this organization? And I say, yes, I am. What can I do for you? And it immediately takes, you know, people get still taken aback. Mm. So I think uh, I, I hope that would change in the next few years. Yeah. Yeah. I have one more sort of heavy question, and then I'll ask something lighthearted, um, and then I'll let you let you go. Um, to give, you know, it's funny because some some folks back home, I, they're, you know, they're checking in on me from time to time. Like, where are you now? Yes. I'm like, I'm in Sri Lanka, and they're looking at a map. Where is it? <laughs> I can't find it. <laughs> like, it, just at the bottom of India. Um, so I think that maybe some people might not know the history of Sri Lanka, and we don't need to give people a history lesson. But essentially, like many places in the world that were colonized, it was decolonized uh, in large part because of the stigma of empire from World War II. Um, and it wasn't like many places that were colonized, it wasn't the cleanest transition because you had people of different um, identity groups or, or ethnic groups um, who are now all of a sudden Sri Lankans, right? Um, which I think is a very rough and sloppy way of saying that's sort of like the root of um, the civil war. Yeah. Um, and so the country hasn't been the country of Sri Lanka for even 100 years, and there was a 26-year civil war, which is quite a long time in the ratio of years of how long it's been a country. Um, has it fully recovered from that time, or is there any residual effects still in Sri Lanka from the 26 years of civil war? I think um, the war is over, but uh, changing mindsets of people is going to take a long time. Mm. Uh, the, the, two, the two main groups, the Sinhalese and the Tamil, uh, sadly, there's a lot of it, a lot of the, the hurts and regrets of the war still going on in their minds. Mm. So, for example, you know, in Kandy, the majority of the kids that we work with are Sinhalese, mm. or even the kids in Gaul, they're, they're nearly 100% Sinhalese. And if you take the kids we work in the north and east, um, they're right. mostly Tamil, nearly 100%. But uh, when we invited them as, you know, part, part of the you know, peace and reconciliation, obviously, Sri Lanka being a cricket playing nation yeah. <laughs> we invited them to play cricket together oh. and uh, something that the kids you know down here they say immediately the immediate reaction was like 
oh, they're all terrorists, you know. What oh. if they bomb us off? What if they shoot us? And I was like horrified by this thought. And here the kids in the north were very reluctant to come to play. Right. Because they said, oh, they're the guys who killed all our family. Right. And so this is like an, another generation now. And this is the next generation still growing up with that kind of feeling about the war. So I think it's going to take a few more generations before this can change in the minds of people. Physically, though the war may be over, um, I think in the minds of people, they're still very cautious, still don't want to have much to do with each other, Uh, which is why even as an organization, we keep drawing them together, come, you know, inter-center matches, and, you know, then we mix the teams up so that they're all together, and though they don't speak the languages of each other, they still have to explain things non-verbally, and still get on the same team together. And it's just trying to help change the way they see each other. Yeah. And I think that largely needs to happen in the country. Wow, that's beautiful. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. All right, so I've talked about a lot of heavy stuff. If, if someone says, hey, Debbie, I'm coming to Sri Lanka. I have one week. What are a couple things like that come to mind, the first things that come to mind that you think, man, you absolutely have to do or see this thing to experience Sri Lanka? Wow, that's a hard question. <laughs> <laughs> Given that Sri Lanka is such a small country with a very, very diverse yes. uh, culture and environment, wherever you go, everything's different. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd definitely say try some of the Sri Lankan food, uh, especially things like kotu. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd definitely say go climb Sigiriya, go to Alla, uh, hit, hit either Unawatuno or Arugambe for some of the beaches. Yeah. Uh, go to Trincomalee, maybe the Pigeon Island, do some scuba diving. It's the best. Awesome. Um, do the train from, from uh, Nanue to Ella. It's beautiful. Yeah, I did... Um, yesterday morning, I did Ella to oh, Candy. Right. Yeah. Okay. Oh, it was so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, well... And the whale watching. Oh, from the south? Yeah. Either uh, from the south. So right now, it's in the east, I think. Oh, really? Trincomalee's got the whales right now. Because of the monsoon season? or Yeah, yeah, oh. it depends. It changes from time to time. Yeah. February, I think, is down south. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to have, for everyone listening, um, information to the website for the organization, information on how to um, provide uh, monetarily or if people want to volunteer or anything like that. Debbie, thank you so much. This was, this was enlightening and, and, and really awesome. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for the opportunity, Tim. Really appreciate this chance. So thanks so much. And thank you for dropping into Bono and looking up Child Action Lanka. Awesome. Thank you. All right. That wraps up episode number 73, everybody. This was the Voyages of Tim Vetter podcast. Thank you to Debbie. Thank you to everybody who is faithfully listening to every episode. As always, take care of each other, and I will see you next time. Mm-hmm.